Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but I had no idea where to go for answers. So with Running Explained, I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is Stephanie Natchuk. Steph is a registered dietitian, a certified personal trainer, and the owner of Stephanie Natchuk Performance Nutrition. She helps runners of all levels achieve their personal best performance using her three-step strategy, the Fuel Train Recover Method. You probably know her on Instagram as Steph the Runner's Dietitian. Now here's the thing. In this episode, we're talking about running and weight loss. And if you're here because you're looking for exactly how many calories to eat or the specific deficit that will help you achieve your goals or the one meal or meal timing that is going to be the ultimate solution to all of your problems, you're not going to find that here. That's not what this episode is about. As you'll come to understand, nutrition and weight loss is something that is highly personalized. But I hope that you can learn something about weight loss and how it may or may not fit into your larger plans from what we talk about today. Steph, welcome to the show. I am delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to be chatting with you today. So I always like to ask my guests, first off, I want to hear your story. Tell me how you became a runner and how you became a dietitian who works specifically with runners and other athletes. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that my story of like how I became a runner is actually kind of a funny one that maybe not a lot of people would anticipate. So I wasn't one of those like high school track athletes or somebody who ever ran, um, you know, when I was younger. And then I was already a personal trainer. Actually, I was in my 20s and my friends and I decided we wanted to do one of those obstacle course races. So I don't they're they're still kind of popular. But of course, this past year, everything's been on hold. And uh, the one that we were sort of interested in doing was like a, some 13 mile race. And so I was like, man, you know, if I am going to be able to do this 13 mile obstacle course, like I'm going to have to be able to run 13 miles. Oh my goodness. And, um, yeah, so I was, I started to, you know, maybe work on, on some endurance stuff. Of course, me being somebody who before that had said, you know, running anything longer than two miles was like basically a waste of time and so boring. Um, I ended up doing my first half marathon that year and we never ended up doing the 13 mile obstacle course, but we have done some shorter mud runs that were um, more local to us. And yeah, now after that, I think I've finished, um, seven half marathons I've got under my belt now and some shorter races as well. So it kind of just sparked something that I ended up falling in love with. So then in terms of how I became working with runners as a professional, um, Sport nutrition and performance nutrition has really just been something that I've always been so passionate about. Working with athletes, you know, on that broader scale has been my career goal since day one from becoming a dietitian. And as we'll kind of get into a little bit more as we go through our conversation, one of the things that I really love about it um, is that I actually am always having to tell people to eat more. And so I love that there's this beautiful combination of helping people fuel their bodies better, but then there's so much 
opportunity to help people improve their relationship with food and exercise because we can really help the whole process not feel so hard for people. You know, when we can take away the struggle of the eating and the struggle of the exercise and under fueling and help people actually increase the amount that they're eating, it just creates this really beautiful opportunity. I love that nutrition makes such a fast difference in performance. You know, we can tweak a strategy before a workout and the very next workout, we're already seeing that benefit. So I, I just love that, um, you know, we can kind of bring all of those parts together when it comes to running performance. So I love what you said about the relationship with food, because we're going to be talking today about running and weight loss. And this is a topic that I get a lot of questions about because people reach out specifically and say, what should I be doing to run and lose weight? Is there any a running program you recommend to help me lose weight? Like what's the best way to run and to lose weight at the same time? And being that I am a running coach who focuses on performance and I'm definitely not a nutrition professional, this is why I have you as the professional to talk about this topic. But I think, and as somebody, of course, I mean, I think everybody sometime or another has either had a, a not great relationship with food or a bad relationship with food or a struggle with their weight, wherever they are. And really when I, when I hear talk, people talk about the desire to lose weight, what I hear is them talking about wanting to have a good relationship with the food they do eat. Is that feel like it's on the right track there when it talks about, you talk about weight loss and, and that kind of relationship people have with food? Yeah. And I think that so much of it too is really about wanting to have the confidence to feel good and comfortable in our bodies. And that can happen at any body size. So, you know, looking at weight and looking at a number on the scale is a really convenient way to look at progress or results or, you know, some of those, those phrases. But when you get sort of at that deeper level with people, what most people really want is to feel good. And so to figure out what, what weight or what size would make you feel good, that's, that's not really that important. It's about all those other things that go into it. Because a lot of people have weight cycled many times over the years. And when they were at their smallest weight, I mean, maybe they were happy in some instances because they had a little bit more of that you know, socially acceptable body confidence. But if you look at, okay, well, what were you eating during that time? How hard for it, for you was it to maintain that? It felt like suffering. And there's a reason that it wasn't sustainable long-term. And so healing that food relationship, healing that exercise relationship, and then letting the weight body composition piece sort of be another aspect of the whole process, I think is so key for sustainable results that don't feel like a lot of work. And the, the big part about the weight loss kind of mystery is that if it were easy, we wouldn't have to have discussions like this. Like if, if figuring out where you are most comfortable in your body and if that included losing weight, and you know, if it were easy, everybody would do it and there wouldn't be the multi-billion dollar industry or trillion dollar industry, I'm sure at this point that exists. It is, it's not easier and there is no one size fits all for anybody when it comes to finding the that that balance, whether that includes actually losing weight or not, there isn't like, oh, just do this one thing and you'll find happiness. Well, exactly. And, you know, there is no one thing. And especially because a lot of the messaging that we get that you sort of see just out there in internet world is meant for the population at large, not necessarily runners or other athletes. 
And this is where I see people getting into a lot of trouble, where some of the biggest key messages that we all sort of know and internalize and are, are sort of spouted off by people here and there, you know, whether it's friends or other healthcare providers or family members or whatever, is the idea of we just need to eat less and move more. And we would just lose weight and it would be so easy if we just simply ate less and moved more. And so, I mean, of course, yes, there are going to be segments of our population that this is good advice for, but usually for runners and other athletes, like this is actually really terrible advice. And we're going to talk about why, because I feel like every runner who has started, either they started running because they wanted to lose weight or they were running and decided, hey, I want to lose weight for whatever reason. And then they, they are finding that, okay, I'll just run more to burn the calories. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they are ravenously hungry all the time. Whether, you know, And so people who thought that training for a half or a full marathon was going to be a great weight loss solution are dismayed to find out that they are like so hungry all the time. Why does running make us so hungry? Yeah. And so, you know, to answer that question, I like to talk about let's describe the average runner, you know, let's describe the average person who is going to be, you know, feeling dismayed and feeling really confused about what's going on right now. You know, we're talking about people who are motivated, they're dedicated, they care about their health, they care about wellness. So they really want to do everything right. There is probably a little bit of like perfectionism, maybe some type A personalities going on in the whole mix here. Um, but you know, they're taking all of these these, you know, diet industry, diet culture messages, and they're internalizing them to such an extreme that it's actually getting in the way of their overall results and performance. So, you know, specific to the part about appetite and why running does make us so hungry, it's really interesting. It's sort of a multifactorial thing that's going on. The first piece is, you know, the combination of the physiology and the psychology. So, you know, when we start to increase our energy output, when we're running more miles and we're increasing that expenditure, you know, it's not super weird for us to have an increase in our appetite, right? Our body is trying to maintain that energy balance and our body is trying to preserve us and, and keep us alive. And so we're going to see that increase in those appetite signals. Then on the other hand, when it comes to the psychology of eating, you know, there may be an opportunity for us to allow maybe more treats and bigger portions of things because we do feel like we've earned it. That's not always the case though. And I, I never want to put the onus straight back on the person sitting in front of me to say, well, obviously it's your fault. You just need more willpower. Because again, when we're talking about that advice of just simply eat less and move more, what if that person is already trying to do that? So sometimes it can be an issue of a person working so hard to maintain this very low energy diet while dramatically increasing their mileage. So their expectation is that they should be able to train for a marathon while maybe eating less than 2000 calories a day. And so this in and of itself, this underfueling is going to be a direct trigger for overeating and for binge eating. So it's not really a matter of like, you just need to have more willpower. If we can actually eat more throughout the day to more properly fuel our bodies for running. We don't feel that intense hunger all the time and it isn't such a battle. So, you know, the other really interesting piece of this puzzle is the role that genetics plays in our weight and in our appetite. And so we know that genetically, some people do respond to exercise differently and can lose more weight when they start exercising than others. 
maybe they are more likely to not overeat in response to that exercise. Again, other people too, when they eat more protein, they actually tend to lose more weight from a higher protein diet. And so again, it's, you know, yeah, it's part of our choices around food and maybe part of the things that we're deciding to eat and, um, you know, some of those individual treats and maybe portions that we're allowing ourselves, but there's so much going on that's completely beyond our control. So it doesn't just come down to willpower. Do you think that it's possible to include running in a sustainable weight loss. So if you are actively trying to lose weight, and of course there will be a lot of nutrition factors that specifically go into getting towards that goal, do you think that running can be a healthy part of that? Yeah, I really do. And I think the first thing that we need to get really comfortable with as runners is just blocking out all of that diet industry messaging and all of that messaging around you know, eat less, move more, eat less, move more, and trying to create this really big, extreme um, calorie deficit and this really big gap between how much we burn and how much we eat. And so if we look at the concept of low energy availability, this is something that runners can very easily get into trouble with because they're just simply not getting the fuel they need to look at supporting both of their both their training and their workouts, but also those basic physiological functions. So when we're in a state of low energy availability, we feel terrible. We are having, you know, fatigue, poor workout quality more frequent injuries, illnesses, um, sometimes mood swings, but also often these food cravings that people find really difficult to overcome. We can definitely incorporate running into a more sustainable weight loss strategy if we just simply match up our training output a little bit more closely with our intake. So not having this extreme deficit that gets us into a low energy availability state, but actually bring those two values a little bit closer together so we have a, a more even balance. That makes a lot of sense. Basically the same principles as when we're trying to talk about, you know, sustainably increasing mileage or sustainably 100%. increasing your overall fitness. You have to do it slowly, little chunks, you know, and you can't, you can't just like go from 10 miles a week to 60 miles a week. Like, no, 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 no. You need to, it takes time to get there. And then I think for a lot of people, you talk about the traditional diet messaging is that like, oh, it's going to, if it's not happening really quickly, it, it's not working or there, it's, there's something wrong. So if people aren't losing two pounds a week, then they're not, it doesn't like count the same or something. You So like these, these things that we internalize and don't realize that they're really, they're holding us back and making the progress that we want to be making. Yeah. And I actually really, really love that you bring this up because um, in my group running program, you know, one of my participants, it was just yesterday, she says, you know, I've been waking up early and exercising before work every day for three weeks, and I haven't lost 10 pounds yet. Like, this is my biggest frustration. And, you know, as a dietitian, as a nutrition professional who, you know, I've been working with clients for, you know, 10 years now on this kind of stuff, sometimes people who have especially those who have tried a lot of previous diets where the quick upfront weight loss is really the selling feature. So we hear it a lot where it's the, oh, 10 pounds in the first week or 15 pounds in the first week type of messaging. They come to work with me and they sort of think that maybe, you know, because this is supposed to be the best nutrition plan, like this is going to be a one. There's this magic dietitian fairy dust sprinkled all over this nutrition plan that's going to get them even more results than some of the 
diets they've tried in the past. So having to really switch our mindset toward long-term, more sustainable, slower progress and results is a really hard thing for people to wrap their minds around sometimes because we're used to always being sold that quick fix. And so I, I think that that's something that's just such a, a common experience with people who have been struggling with weight loss for a long time. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's something I actually, I don't even think that I realized until we were just like, until you said something earlier and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, yeah, you it, being bombarded with these messages about weight loss and how we should be losing weight and that it's all pain, no gain and 1200 calories a day. You know, even I've been, you know, running for a couple of years at fairly long distances and changed my attitude a lot around food. But those are some really hard subliminal messages to shake. Well, it is absolutely. And, you know, when we're looking at, we have, you know, one dietitian over here, you know, me, me in my corner saying, oh, you know, give it three months before you're going to see this significant change on the scale. And then everyone else saying, oh, but you could have it tomorrow. If you, if you buy my program, you can have the results that you want tomorrow. Like, you know, <laughs> what do you think people are going to go for? So, you know, understanding body composition, especially, you know, the muscle to fat ratio and kind of bringing it back to what we talked about first and foremost of what most people really want is the relationship that's better and healed, the confidence in their bodies that they can do things and feel good doing them is so much more important than the number on the scale. We just need to keep reminding ourselves of those messages because, you know, we're bombarded with the diet industry messages. So we need to kind of push back with some of that other stuff just as hard. For somebody who is in a phase of running where they're not training for performance, and I say this very specifically because you cannot train for your peak performance while in a calorie deficit, but they are in a phase of their running, you know, a phase where they want to go ahead and do a bit of a calorie deficit with the intention of losing weight. That's something that if done correctly, you feel would be okay for a runner to do. Yeah. And I think that really we need to be strategic about, again, not underfueling, not getting into that state of low energy availability. So taking a good, realistic look at what's our weekly mileage, what's our weekly training schedule looking like, and approaching it with just facts, not judgment of, oh, I should be doing more, I should be running as many miles or doing all these extra hit workouts and that kind of stuff, but just basic facts without judgment, and then trying to create that small calorie deficit, but not one that's so extreme that we're going to wind up either driving up those hunger signals and really struggling with food cravings, or on the other hand, really not getting the, the training results that we want to see. Because even during those base building or off-season phases, we still want to be getting some benefit from the work that we're putting in. This is where we want to be really strategic about the timing of our meals. And so being more um, strategic about the pre and post workout nutrition, taking a closer look at filling up on higher fiber and higher protein foods so that we can be in that small calorie deficit without it feeling like torture, without it feeling like we're having to constantly fight and combat that hunger. And talking specifically about calories, and you talked 
earlier about how most people, you know, you recommend people actually can eat more than maybe they're used to eating. A lot of women, especially what they think is their normal daily, like this is what my set point is for calories. It's usually under where they should be just to like maintain their normal health. Yeah, exactly. And you know, when we look at some of the very popular diets that have come out in the last couple of years, a lot of them try to be very flexible in terms of what you can eat, but it's all about the portion control, or it's all about, you know, you can have these, this sized container of these certain foods this many times a day, or there are certain freebie foods that you can kind of eat ad lib while having to be careful about other ones. And so because these programs are not they're not meant to be marketed towards an athletic population. So if you're maybe a very small person, you know, body size wise, you're not that tall, um, you're not that active, maybe some of those might line up and work really well for you and not cause that excessive hunger. But if you're a very athletic person, you know, people who are running lots of miles throughout the week, we sometimes need like double what our resting metabolic rate is for calories. Now, when you've had all of those diety messages entrenched in you since we were young girls, when I tell someone, oh, you know what, actually, you should be eating maybe like 2,500 calories a day. Oh, goodness, no. I mean, I'm going to gain so much weight if I eat 2,500 calories a day is just that assumption because we're always told that what makes us fat is eating too much. And, you know, comes right back to that eat less, move more message that if we just work harder and just create a bigger deficit, then we're going to finally see that magic weight loss happen. And it's not just about you know, if we're doing putting numbers on a piece of paper, you know, you don't just have the calories you burn when you run, you have the extra calories it takes for your body to then repair the damage that you've done on top of all the other stuff like breathing and thinking and pumping your heart. Like, it's not just this simple, like, well, I ran eight miles and burned 100 calories. And that's what my deficit is. It's like, there is so much like, more than just that easy equation. Yeah. And you know, I mean, as, as much as the numbers can kind of help guide us in some situations and sort of help give people a little bit more of a real life view of what their needs are. We don't have good ways of knowing what each of us burns day to day. So, you know, even trying to have clear numbers that we can go by, you know, we can be pretty close maybe, but we don't have a way of following you around 24 seven to track exactly how many calories you burn on an ongoing basis. You know, as, as nice as the technology is with some of the wearable stuff we have these days, there are definitely imperfections in the technology. So we don't want to get too focused in on those numbers and think that that holds more value than what our body is telling us in terms of, you know, simple things like our hunger and appetite regulation. And speaking about tracking calories and calorie trackers and apps and all of that, um, I do feel like tracking what you eat in a day can be a useful tool, but not for everybody and not in the same way. Do you want to talk about when it's useful versus not useful to keep track of what you eat like that? Yeah. You know, I think, again, you know, obviously my approach is very personalized and very individualized. So I'm hundred percent on the same page as you with maybe there's a time and a place for this, but not necessarily all the time for everybody. And so in the short term, sometimes it can give us a lot of value, you know, to get that real life look 
no judgment, just facts. And it can be really beneficial, I think, as well for clients sometimes to just see, okay, maybe I am really under fueling. Maybe, you know, I think that I'm doing okay, but I actually am getting, you know, this very small amount of calories and it seemed like it was all right. And my hunger was controlled and everything like that. But then I'm getting hungrier at other times of day and I'm finding that I'm overeating at other times of day. So it, it kind of gives us a nice tool to use in a nutrition session where it's not just somebody maybe having to come off the top of their head with a dietary recall. So I find it really valuable sometimes that way. There are also some really great tools that actually just use pictures. So you're taking a photo of what you're eating and then that is able to, you know, do a nutrient analysis based on the picture that you've taken. So that's also really handy. Now, I find that some people like to do that in the short term, but it is a lot of work. You know, you're having to sit down and remember every day to put in what you ate and the data that you get out of it is only as good as what you put into it. So if you're kind of eyeballing portions and maybe not being that careful about measurements and, you know, being a little bit wishy-washy with what you put into the app, you're only going to get the same quality data back out. So it's only as valuable as what you put into it, which is why we have other really handy tools like our athletes plate tools that give us a really nice visual of how someone can change their eating day to day based on their training demands. And so what this is really handy for is not needing to be so methodical and tedious about putting things into an app. When you're sitting down to a meal, how can I just plate my food so that I know that I'm mostly getting what I need? And so some people love that approach because it's a little bit less time intensive. It's a little bit more flexible, but then there's also always going to be other questions that come up. So neither option is like perfect for everyone in all situations, but they're both great tools that we can use when the time and place calls for it. And so I think keeping our options open and being flexible is really great. It helps us solve our problems and fuel better, become better runners without maybe needing to obsess over a lot of the details. And that obsession thing is really the kind of the key here, because you can have two people who engage in the exact same behavior, but their internal approach and how they feel about it can be very, very different. So what might be completely healthy and totally fine for one person, for the other person to do the same thing might trigger some really disordered habits. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it all comes down to you know, the education that that person is receiving around using the app. And so, you know, I don't really want to throw any specific programs under the bus, but one of the most popular tracking tools out there, and I think everyone probably can assume the one that I'm talking about, it has caused so many problems for people in terms of their relationship with calories, because it pumps out a mathematical equation that tells you how much you should be eating. And that number is too low for the vast majority of human beings, never mind athletes. It also gives you, and to be fair, maybe it doesn't anymore, but back in the days when I had used it, it also gave you a lot of really positive feedback for under eating. And so the bigger the deficit you were in, the more congratulations you would get at the end of that day. And so now I have so many people who, because of that, they've internalized these messages of eating less is better. Eating less is better. If I just eat less, I will lose weight faster. And I'm doing a good job by eating the smallest amount that I possibly can. And then trying to provide education to correct that is really difficult because we've internalized so many of these messages so deeply. So 
calories in and of themselves and looking at our energy and take an energy balance isn't necessarily a harmful practice in and of itself, but we need to have that education about, okay, maybe this is the minimum calories that we're going to aim for, as opposed to having a maximum that we've set. And now anything under that is going to be congratulated and rewarded. Yes. And I remember it, that app you are referring to, um, that used to be that if you, if you ate under or whatever your, your end, end of day total was, it would then tell you how soon you'd reach your goal weight. Oh my goodness. Is this like, oh, if you were always this far under your deficit, you would reach your goal weight in like in, in 17 weeks or whatever it was. It's oh my like, goodness. And then we wonder why intermittent fasting has become such a popular thing, right? But, and, and this is exactly it. And like, I, I'm sorry, never in the history of ever did that work. For people to just say like, oh, you know, the more you under eat, the, the quicker you will get to that goal weight over those five or six or 17 weeks or whatever. And I think that that in and of itself has just made so many people afraid of eating absolutely anything with the rise in so many different conflicting popular diets. I think many people have also reached a point where no matter what food choice they make, they feel bad about it. You know, whether it's anything with carbs in it, we've been taught that carbs are bad for us. And so people are really trying to avoid those. And then, you know, dairy, we've been told about the the horrors of eating dairy and how nobody should have dairy. So people eat dairy and they feel bad about it. And then they end up having a bag of chips. And of course, well, you know, oh my goodness, what's wrong with me for eating this bag of chips? And so just no matter what someone is putting in their mouth, they feel like it's the wrong thing. So there's so much guilt and shame around food that it just, you know, becomes a real disaster for a lot of people who are still trying to reach their goals, but also support good performance. And also the guilt and shame people feel when they feel hungry and wondering why they feel hungry when they're running these huge calorie deficits. Like I, I, I'm looking, thinking back on stuff that I put myself through and like being angry with myself that I was starving on the lemon cayenne pepper drink diet. Like I wasn't, I was, I was starving. Like, of course I was hungry. Like my body should have been reacting that way, but we're so used to kind of stuffing these totally normal signals that our body is like, right, like, Hey, you're hungry. You need to eat something. And we're saying, shush, shush body. I don't yep. want to hear from you. That's the wrong thing to say. Yep. So like, how do you help somebody like reevaluate their relationship with how hunger is not the bad guy here? Yeah. And you know, this, that's such a challenge today, you know, like in 2021, because the newest diet du jour has been the intermittent fasting. And so now, because we've really demonized every food out there, you know, we've, we've gone through hating fat, we've gone through hating sugar, we've gone through hating animal foods, we've gone like we've, we've been through it all. We've reached a point now where if you need to eat food in general, well, there's something wrong with you. You know, you just need to fast and that's going to solve all your problems. So it is really a journey that people have to go on to make peace with the fact that their bodies do need fuel and it's okay to eat and just simply fueling your body does not automatically equal weight gain but you know there's also so much inherent fat phobia that goes along with all of these diet industry messages and it's really complicated when we start to get into some of that part where is gaining weight always the worst thing in the world if maybe that's what your body needs to function properly. 
And so that in and of itself too, is a really hard message for people to internalize just because our society is so unaccepting of people in larger bodies. So I think that the solution that I have found in my practice is just really taking the time to establish that client provider trust, where when I try to encourage someone to, you know, maybe think about having a pre-workout meal and see how that goes. It's really coming from a place of trust and respect, as opposed to it just being, you know, here's a handout about how many calories you need to eat in a day, just go and do it. So I think that it takes time and it takes a gentle approach because people have really truly been traumatized by diet industry messages. So before we dive into some of that myth busting about popular diets and talk about the stuff that definitely does not help you with weight loss, <laughs> I want to go back and talk about why specifically you cannot train to your peak performance while running a calorie deficit. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, that kind of goes back to a concept that I have, you know, mentioned this phrase a couple of times so far, but the concept of low energy availability. And so when we don't have enough gas in the tank, enough fuel in our muscles to perform at the level we need to perform at, our body has two choices. We either go to alternate sources of fuel or we stop performing. And we can't push ourselves to peak performance if we don't have the tools that our body needs to be able to do that. So in the moment that we're exercising, we're going to feel, you know, completely out of gas. Our legs are going to feel weak and tired. We're not going to have the mental stamina and the motivation to want to keep pushing ourselves. That's also a really big um, part of it. And so because of that, we're not able to push ourselves physically during our workouts. But then if we're also under fueling, we're not going to get the recovery that we need. So after the workout, we're not getting the energy, we're not getting the carbs, we're not getting the protein that we need to rebuild that muscle stronger, to replenish those glycogen stores, to return to our normal resting metabolic rate after that workout session. And so that can, you know, really cause us to move in the wrong direction in terms of not only our performance, like not only how fast and how hard we can run, um, but injury prevention, body composition, some of those other really key things that go into building an overall uh, strong runner, we're not going to be headed in the right direction with those either. And so I think that there's definitely a time and a place to look at body composition and weight, but it's not going to be in those weeks leading up to your big race. That's not, not the right time for it. Yeah. I feel under fueling is definitely like the bullet train to overtraining. Like you, even if you just take yep. your normal training load and st start eating less, you are going to end up in overtraining syndrome territory just because it, it's not about the miles that you run. It's about how much you can recover from the training that you're doing. Yeah. And I think that I, actually that brings up a really good point about the concept of overtraining and what overtraining is, because I think to a lot of people, we think of overtraining as somebody who's maybe running a hundred miles a week, you know, only ultra marathoners or elite athletes who are doing multiple workouts a day can overtrain. But exactly like you said, there is no number. There is no specific criteria for overtraining. It's more than your body can handle in that moment in time. I was actually talking about this on a solo podcast episode um, a couple weeks ago. Somebody asked about the like the relationship between cortisol and running. Mm -hmm. And I talked, you know, about mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, your body doesn't know 
know what the source of the cortisol is. So if you are in just an overall heightened stress state, which we've all been in the past year, basically because of COVID, and you try to go through the same training program this year that you did three years ago, nothing may have changed except you just have a lower tolerance for that kind of training because you're already in a heightened stress state. And under fueling also increases your cortisol level and basically does the same thing, makes your body feel like it's on high alert all the time. Yeah. And, you know, like all of these adaptations in terms of our hormone levels and our hunger and appetite regulation in that low energy availability state. I mean, these are things that adapted far before our modern human age to protect us. These are things that our body is doing to try and stop us from starving to death. Our brain does not know the difference between a true famine and a self-imposed famine because we're not that far removed, you know, even in our Western society, we're not that far removed from periods of time when there were legitimate food shortages. And so the brain is still very much living in this prehistoric era of, you know, needing to do whatever it can to stay alive. So if if we can make peace with that, improve our relationship with food and our bodies, we can really sort of work with our body to have this not feel like we're constantly having to beat ourselves into submission, you know, having to work with all that willpower and force ourselves to do all these really hard things. We can actually really get more flow going if we become friends with what's happening in our body. And that's a the evolutionary thing. That's a good segue into like talking about the trendy stuff and, mm, and myth yeah. busting, whether or not these things are helpful or for runners mm. or they're not. And I think intermittent fasting is a good one to start with because like you said, it's an evolutionary adaptation to allow us to go longer times without food, but that's out of like necessity, not out of choice, right? <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, this is something I, and I find, especially the fasted training has really, um, has really gotten popular in the last couple of years. And I love talking about intermittent fasting with people because, you know, depending on the timing of your fast, because there's so many different ways to do it, right? So depending on the timing of your fast and the timing of your workouts, you may flip a coin and you actually may do just fine because maybe you're doing a early time restricted feeding and you happen to be training in the morning. Hey, you might get great results. On the other hand, if you are trying to exercise in the morning and then you're not eating until maybe noon or one o'clock in the afternoon, yeah, you're really setting yourself up for not success. You're going to have the opposite because you just didn't line it up in that right way. Comes back to the whole idea of needing to be strategic around our meal timing. So when it comes to performance, when it comes to whether it's building muscle or whether it is fat loss as well, um, or just simply getting better, faster when it comes to our training, fasted training is a big no-no. <laughs> I can, you know, like in terms of the hormone changes, so you mentioned cortisol, that's definitely one of them. Our appetite, you know, we're going to have a significant increase in appetite um, ghrelin specifically later on in the day, we're also going to have a hard time just simply performing during that workout. And something I always like to say when this topic comes up is just because a workout feels hard to you in that moment that you're doing it doesn't objectively mean that it was a hard workout. So if you have no gas in the tank, 
you maybe haven't even had water that day, you're dehydrated, your heart rate is going to be much higher when you're trying to get that workout done compared to if you were hydrated and you were well fueled. And so just because your heart is pumping like crazy during this, you know, objectively not super fast run doesn't mean that it's a harder workout or that you're getting more performance benefit from it. So your best bet is really to look at your overall nutrition strategy, make sure that you're timing in that pre and post workout nutrition. And then, you know, if you do want to set a little bit of a guideline for yourself around, I'm not going to snack late in the evening, I'm going to have my dinner at six o'clock and I'm not going to eat a bag of chips after seven in front of the TV. I don't really think there's anything wrong with that. Let's talk a bit more about fasted running and kind of, and address the, the kind of but uh, thing that I get from people, which I also at one point in time believed is that fasted running and also people who follow keto diets, that if you, if you train in a fasted state, you are training your body to burn fat for fuel. And that is somehow morally superior. I don't, obviously not. I'm just kidding about that, but I feel like some people feel like if they can yeah, train their bodies to burn their own body fat. They're like winning some sort of contest that none of us are participating in. And I understand the allure. I really, really, really do. To be yeah. some sort of like clean body fat burning machine is like, it's very seductive to want to be that, but that's not how our bodies work, right? Talk about how that's not what's actually happening. Yes, exactly. And so, I mean, you know, at rest and during low intensity exercise, 100%, we are burning primarily fat for fuel. What's really interesting, and I think is something that's really underappreciated about running in general, is just simply by doing those, um, you know, easy miles and just building up that aerobic base, we actually become better at using fat as an energy source. So just simply by doing more training, we naturally help our bodies use more fat as fuel during those longer, slower runs, which I think is interesting that no one really talks about that. But in any case, oh, you know, I talk about it. Oh. I talk about how easy running helps fat oxidation and everybody's like, wait, fat what? And I'm like, don't worry. It's good for you. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, when it comes to that, the, the concept of trying to get sort of keto adapted or fat adapted for, um, running performance, um, for people who are doing very long endurance races. And, you know, basically we would define that as races that are going to be lasting three or more hours. There is some benefit in terms of the logistics of not maybe needing to carry as much fuel with you. So if people are doing these extremely long endurance events uh, where normally you would need a backpack of food to be able to keep you going for, you know, maybe these hundred or more miles, there is some logistical benefit from the physical weight you would have to carry to not have to do that. However, just because there's a logistical benefit to that doesn't mean that it's optimal for your body composition. And the last thing I want to see for a runner, and I especially mean this for, um, you know, our master's level runners, we don't want to be seeing muscle loss. And so the higher the intensity of our exercise, the more carbohydrate we need for fuel. And if we're not getting that carbohydrate from our diet, we're going to have to make that carbohydrate. And the liver does that with, through a pathway called gluconeogenesis. So this is the creation of sugar by the liver. And what it uses is yes, fat, like that is part of that process, but also amino acids from our muscle. And so when we're in that fasted state, we're not getting enough fuel. We're having to make our own and we're really sacrificing muscle. So 
for some people, an outcome of that might be weight loss, but it's not necessarily the right kind of weight loss. And we're ultimately not doing ourselves any favors when it comes to body composition. So outside of that very specific type of ultra endurance sport, where we're just trying to logistically make it easier for someone to finish that event, um, there really is no benefit to the facet training or even trying to get keto adapted, um, quote unquote, just because at the end of, you know, six months or a year, we're probably not going to be in a better state of body composition. And actually, you know, I'll be the first person to say when I started running, I was a strict keto adherent and I actually ran my first marathon, quote unquote, fat adapted. And I would, please don't do this. It, I can tell you from personal experience, the intensity level you you need to run a marathon is above that ultra endurance zone she was just talking about because Yes. I mean, you can, you can go for hours at a walk, you know, but that's a very low intensity zone. But when we're really trying to maximize our performance, uh, you can't do it unless you have carbs in your body. And, you know, what's really interesting too, and again, this isn't something that's talked a lot about in some of the very prominent, very pro keto, um, fat adapted circles is that a lot of the people who use this as a strategy during races, still use carbs during races. So no, they're not eating a hard carb diet all the time as part of their normal life. But when they need that quick fuel, they know that that's what's going to help them get that boost to sort of get them through that race. And so I think this is also something that the average person who's maybe trying this for themselves doesn't have that key piece of information um, where, you know, like this, this can be legitimately harmful sometimes, you know, some people can make it through no problem, but there are going to be instances where someone can wind up very injured because of it. Yeah. And it's especially different for women. I mean, so different. there just are different considerations for the hormonal implications specifically about when women adhere to low carbohydrate diets and then add extreme long, you know, long distance running on top of that. But I, yes, I thank you for pointing that out because I think, um, Zach Bitter, who is a very famous, very fast ultra, uh, runner comes to mind. And he's very famous in, in these circles for being somebody who is, fat adapted and keto and all these things. And yet, yeah, when he goes to set world records at whatever distance it is, like he is fueling up with goo or whoever his sponsor is, you know, he's not chowing down on heavy cream. Like he's actually eating carbohydrate based performance fuels. Yeah. And, you know, I know that there have been some people and of course I'm terrible with names, so I'm, I'm not going to try and pull them up out of my head right now, but there was, there was one guy who, was using high fat foods to fuel one of his ultra races. And what I thought was really interesting was that he did not perform better. So from the, you know, regular carbohydrate fueled um, ultra race to the fat fueled ultra race, the performance was not different. So his stance on it was that he was not trying to perform better. He was just trying to prove that it could be done. And I think that when you look at nutrition and exercise professionals, no one is saying that it can't be done. <laughs> the question, of course, is always, is this going to optimize performance? Just because something can be completed doesn't mean that it's best for us. And it also doesn't mean that it's going to lead to improvements in body composition or, or speed or performance over time. And really, that's where my interest is, and I think that's where a lot of people in my industry's interest is, it's not about just doing things for the sake of doing them. It's what's actually going to be best for that athlete to help them perform better. I completely agree. Yes, you you can do it. Sure. It's not going to kill you. 
hopefully, hopefully to do these types of things. But is your goal to just do it or is your goal to do it well? And I think like I you know, there's no there's no medal for doing a marathon keto versus, you know, with carbohydrate based fuels if the keto one doesn't make you faster, you know, and and I think yeah, they know they've I've seen they have done some studies and basically says like there's not really a significant increase in performance and actually it lower lower the shorter the distance and I say quote unquote shorter the distance like the half marathon, you know, the shorter the distance, the short the farther away you get from true ultra distance, like the worse the outcomes are, yes. the more trouble that you have Absolutely. when you don't have that glycogen and those carbohydrates available to you. Yeah. And what's so interesting too is actually the mental um, you know, benefit of having carbohydrate during those hard workouts. So even just simply the sweet taste of your sports drink or your gel or whatever it is in your mouth gives you a little bit of a mental perk that puts a little bit of pep in your step. And so that's something else that we can really utilize, you know, when you hit that 18 miles and you are really starting to hate running this marathon, having those carbohydrate sources available, because when we have mental energy, we are going to have muscle energy. When we have mental fatigue, we're going to have muscle fatigue. And so that little bit of sweet flavor and especially being able to change it up and having different flavors as we're doing some of those longer races, that's going to actually help keep us feeling energized and motivated as we continue on. It's a great strategy. It's not, it's not cheating. It's not, you know, like it's, it's a really beneficial thing that I think more people need to take advantage of. Yeah, though, that's an excellent point. I never understood people who could deal with unflavored race fuel. Like that just sounded like the worst thing in the world to me. I'm like, you know, give me all the artificial flavors. Like I want cherry lime in my mouth. Like give me something to like pay attention to other than how much my legs hurt right now. Oh my goodness. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. But I think, and, and you know, I find that with running, there sometimes is such a purity culture with running, you know, like Sometimes there is just such a, oh, you know, I don't need fuel. I don't need, um, you know, carbs. I don't need anything like, so sometimes, you know, again, I think it's the perfectionism that we sort of get. It becomes a little bit of a competition of who can do it with the least amount of stuff or tools. So, you know, it's, it's just something that we kind of need to not participate in and not subscribe to. It's too bad that that kind of stuff still exists. When you know, at the end of the day, we should be we should be doing the best thing we can do for ourselves individually, and not what somebody else judges us for. If that's something that makes us feel better, especially and perform better as well. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the the things that more things that don't help you. Um, myth busting that being lighter makes you faster. Yeah. And so this is a really, a really interesting topic to kind of get into because everyone is going to have a personal best weight, but I would even say weight with a grain of salt. You know, what it really is going to be is a best body composition and a best fueling strategy. It's, it's kind of all of those parts put together. And so, you know, we don't want to be looking at the other runners on the track. We don't want to be looking at maybe our, our teammates if we're on a track team. We don't want to be looking at what our, you know, running coach says that our weight should be because we aren't looking at maybe the more important aspects of training um, and being able to fuel for those runs and get that recovery that we need, but also body composition. And so you can take two athletes that maybe are the same weight, 
but have dramatically different body composition. On the other hand, we can have two athletes, one weighs way more than the other, but is faster because they have the body composition that they need. I also think there's so much pressure on female athletes in particular to try and maintain these absurdly low body fat percentages. You know, low body fat percentages that are well within the range of, um, you know, losing that hormone function, maybe not having a regular menstrual cycle. And that in so many circles is sort of your badge of honor that, okay, now you're really a runner. Now you're really an athlete. When instead women require a significantly higher body fat percentage than male runners do just to maintain that basic hormone function. But because we have done it, because there's such a culture around it, it's hard to break out of that cycle and maybe be a, you know, and I say very loose air quotes, a bigger female runner when it's just compared to maybe this very unhealthy idea, ideal. So again, we want to be looking at just because something can be done and is being done doesn't mean that it's optimal and maybe being a little bit more flexible about like, why do we even care what a runner looks like? Right? If we care about performance, why are we even weighing someone? Why are we even looking at some of those physical attributes when performance is really the most important thing? It's been very helpful recently to have a lot of female runners specifically come forward and say, yeah. talk about times where they specifically were either being told to underfuel or were underfueling because they didn't know any better and then suffered the consequences of it because I'm thinking, you know, Mary Kane and like, and there's been a, a couple other prominent female distance runners who come forward. And the thing is, when you look back at those pictures, they look like the quote unquote ideal female runner. Like they had their like super vascular and like eight pack abs. And when we look at those runners and we think that's what I want to look like, it's yeah. helpful to hear from their own lips now that like, that was a really unhealthy period of time for them. And actually in those times they didn't perform better either. Yeah. And a lot of them also were suffering with injuries that were not getting better, which is ultimately what sidelines so many of these female athletes is they wind up with these injuries that they just cannot continue down that path. And it, it gets them out of the sport far too young. Okay. So let's talk about, this is going to be a really low hanging fruit, but are there any supplements or pre-workouts that will help you lose weight if you take them in conjunction with your running? No. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, I mean, I don't want to negate some of the things that do have some good research. So while there aren't supplements that are like, you know, here, take this fat burning pillar or, or some such thing, you know, I mean, there is great evidence to support the use of caffeine, you know, for people who, again, genetically um, are kind of responders and, and the fast metabolizers for caffeine. Um, you know, there's definitely some performance enhancement that we can see there. So, you know, I do not want to tell anyone that they are, better off throwing away their morning cup of coffee. The other one that's actually really interesting has been getting a lot more traction lately is creatine. And so while creatine is not, you know, a direct weight loss supplement in that sense, you know, the um, performance benefits and also the muscle, um, you know, body composition benefits I know that there are a lot of people out there who are really advocating for creatine use a little bit more widespread, not specific just to the strength and power athletes that maybe we would have thought before. So those are two things that I would maybe keep on my radar, but aren't things that, you know, are necessarily going to have a dramatic impact on fat loss or weight loss. 
So going back to the, again, the things that we know are not going to help you lose weight and fasted running is one of them. You talked a little bit about getting your pre-run and post-run fueling done correctly. Tell us why that it's so important to get that done correctly and why it helps you with weight loss. Yeah. If you're trying to lose weight. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, even if you're not, it's going to help you with performance, which, you know, and then a roundabout way, if body, if, if improving your body composition just simply from building more muscle is your goal. It's also going to pay dividends in that respect too. So the reason that I'm so passionate about really that nutrient timing is because we want to go into our workout with enough fuel in our bodies to perform the best we possibly can. And so the last thing we want is for hitting the wall and running out of fuel to impact our ability to finish that workout strong. And so if we want to get the most benefit in terms of our cardiovascular system and our muscle and all of the adaptations that are taking place, we are going to do so many favors for our body just by giving it the energy it needs starting out. On the flip side, on the post-workout side of things, we want to start that recovery piece right away. So we want to be getting in that high protein and high carb meal as quickly as we can after our workout so we can start replacing that muscle glycogen. The first couple of hours after a workout is when our muscles are most able to absorb glycogen, most able to um, replenish those glycogen stores. So we don't need to be, you know, trying to eat as we're like finishing our cool down. We're not trying to like open up our container of spaghetti as we're still maybe walking on the treadmill or something. But there is a window where we're going to have the most opportunity to get that, that refueling started. And then also the protein to start the muscle recovery process. And so if we can really optimize those two eating opportunities, then what we're able to do is get the most benefit from the training that we're doing, which in turn is going to help us continue to build on those performance benefits. So really, you know, not that pre and post workout fueling does anything magical for our fat loss attempts, but it certainly is going to help set us up for success when it comes to achieving our overall training goals. And especially in terms of appetite regulation, I mean, I think people who are who are struggling to lose weight and they're doing these things like neglecting pre and post workout fueling, and then they're having those ghrelin spikes later in the day, and all of a sudden they're binge eating late at night. I mean, just trying to keep everything kind of as stable as possible throughout the day, getting that pre and post run fueling in is really helpful for that. Yeah, exactly. And so, if we want to do ourselves as many favors as possible. Again, you know, chances are, let's say you're doing a run in the morning. I'm speaking very generally here, but a lot of people are not going to finish their workout, you know, at 7 a.m. and then sit down and maybe eat a container of ice cream like that. That would be a little bit strange for for a lot of people. Right. But we wouldn't think as much about maybe digging into something like that later on after dinner. And so when we're being more strategic about our timing and we're planning our meals a little bit better, then we can make a point of choosing the more nutritious foods during the daytime, which can lead to fewer food cravings for especially the sweet stuff later in the day. So people tend to get a lot of cravings for those high sugar and high carb foods, again, because the brain is just lacking that energy. And so we're trying to fill that void with those things that are quick sources of energy and really tasty. If we can fill up on the nutritious stuff earlier in the day, it becomes less of a struggle. 
And then, of course, there's always a point where somebody might need, if they're really struggling with disordered eating or obsessive thoughts or compulsive eating patterns, like that might be time to seek some professional help. It's not to say that, you know, oh, listening to this podcast is going to help you and it's going to fix everything. There is a time and a place, especially with food stuff, which can be really complicated where, you know, if you're really struggling, that's that's the time to see somebody who can help you on a higher level, right? Well, absolutely. And I think that you know, especially with the past year, it's been really hard on people. People have been out of sport. Our bodies have changed. There's been new stressors, more time at home. It's impacted us in a lot of different ways. And I know that there's been a lot of talk about disordered eating really being on the rise because of what we've all gone through in the past year. And so I think it's worthwhile for people, even if they're not you know, you don't need to have a fully diagnosed eating disorder to maybe reach out to get some help just to see, you know, I'm, I'm having maybe a lot of preoccupation with food or I'm struggling with my eating choices. I have a lot of body dissatisfaction that I maybe want to work through um, to sort of start with that healing opportunity for not only your relationship with food and your body and exercise, but open yourself up to maybe, you know, better performance going forward because you have fixed that that foundation. You fix that foundation of having those good relationships. And just to wrap up, I'd like to point out to anybody who's made it all the way to the end of the episode that when we're talking about performance and fueling in runners is that if you run, you're a runner and you should fuel like a runner. And so there, the, the things that we're talking about today, when we talk about fueling your body correctly, there's no mileage threshold. There's no like, oh, unless you run X miles per week, you know, below that, you're not really a runner. This doesn't apply to you. I mean, if you have made it all the way to my account, to this episode, and you're curious about weight loss and running and how that fits together, you know, def- you are a runner. And so I want, I want all listeners to understand that if you run, you should feel yourself like a runner and, and feel for performance and health. And you may pursue weight loss goals, but your ultimate goal should be, as Steph was saying, you know, to find that good relationship with your body and with food and what works for you. And yes, you are a runner and you are an athlete and you should feel yourself like one. Yeah. I don't want people to think that they should still be intermittent fasting and training with no fuel. And this, all the, all of these messages don't apply to them because they don't run enough for it to apply to them. So I'm glad you brought that up because you're absolutely right. Yeah. There's no, like if you run it, I mean, you know, for intermittent fasting, that's a whole different discussion, but you don't need, it doesn't only apply to people who are training for marathons. Like all of the things that were discussed here today apply to all athletes. I mean, if you work out in any capacity, I think this is not just running specific. This is stuff that's applicable to whatever form of exercise that you incorporate into your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this has been absolutely fantastic. And I know I feel like I budgeted an hour and I'm like, well, we got off on a great tangent. Like that could have been its own wonderful episode. So, <laughs> um, but Steph, if people want to find you, follow you, work with you, how can they do that? Yeah. So um, in terms of social media, I'm definitely most active on Instagram. And uh, that's where I really love to share a lot of this um, performance nutrition content. So I am Steph the runner's dietitian with a period in between each of those words. And then my website where I have my blog that is all about nutrition and running and um, performance is www.stephanienackjack.com. And I'll make sure that everything's linked in the show notes, Instagram and her website. And you're in Canada, is that correct? I sure am. Oh. Uh, and do you take clients across the border or around the world? Or are you just local to Canada? So the only thing is it actually depends on where the client lives. 
And so um, depending on uh, legislation around licensing for things like dietitians. It actually just depends on the client, um, state to state or country to country. So I can, it just depends on where, where that individual lives. So you can reach out to me and we will see if we can make it work. Maybe you'll get lucky and you can work with her. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There well, this go. has been absolutely fantastic. Like I said, I'm going to link to all of Steph's stuff in the show notes. This has been a great conversation. I mean, I could talk about this kind of stuff all day. So um, I want to thank you for being a guest on the show. And I hope that we'll get to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find me on Instagram at Running Explained or at my website, runningexplained.co. If you have a question you'd like to have answered, you can submit it in my stories every Monday or email me at elizabeth at runningexplained.co. That's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H at runningexplained.co. Until next time, happy running! This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.